This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 17th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about tracking a coastal ecosystem over the course of 600 years. David Groom is out this week, but he'll be back next week with the News Roundup. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. About one quarter of the world's fisheries are within upwelling zones, areas where nutrient-rich deep water is driven upwards by winds across the surface. In a report this week, Brian Black and colleagues investigate the variability of one such upwelling zone over a 600-year time period by looking at tree rings along the neighboring coast. I spoke with him about how they constructed such a long record and how it can be used in the 21st century. Well, in this study, we documented that there are strong linkages between marine and terrestrial systems that are driven by these very broad climate patterns. And so we could use trees in the terrestrial system to hindcast what the marine system has been doing over the last six centuries. So we could understand modern variability in its very long-term context. Okay. Well, we're actually going to be talking about coastal upwelling. So is that what it sounds like, water moving from the depths of the ocean towards the surface of the water? And, you know, why is it an important phenomenon to track? Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. And if you've ever visited the West Coast, especially in the summer, you'll notice these very strong winds from the north. And those winds, in combination with the rotation of the earth, move surface waters offshore. And those surface waters are replaced by these deep, cold, but very nutrient-rich waters, which supercharge productivity in the California current. Coastal upwelling zones are extremely productive. They're among the world's most productive marine ecosystems. And so they do support very large fisheries and are of of high societal and ecological importance. They uh, host a very biodiverse ecosystem and also support very societally important fisheries. So this might be something that's kind of difficult to track over time, how strong the winds are, how much nutrients are off the coast of California. So to get around a long-term lack of records, you use tree ring samples from the coast instead. How are the tree rings and upwelling related to each other? 
trees are related to upwelling and that these large high-pressure systems that build off the Northeast Pacific off the coast of California, they have this clockwise rotation, and that clockwise rotation favors upwelling winds, the winds that drive the upwelling process. And these high-pressure systems also block the onshore flow of precipitation off the Pacific. The jet stream and, and storms track from offshore to onshore in the Pacific region. And these high-pressure systems block them, which induce drought on land as well as favorable upwelling conditions in the ocean. And so that's how the marine and terrestrial systems are linked through these broad-scale climate processes. So the wind has an effect both on the ocean and also on the trees. And in the case of the ocean, it drives more upwelling when there's stronger winds, but it drives drought on the land, and you're going to see sad trees. Well, that's right. The high-pressure systems favor these north upwelling winds, which are driving productivity in the ocean. And those same high-pressure systems that are favoring those north upwelling winds are also blocking the onshore flow of precipitation, which leads to drought on land and very unhappy trees. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that's right. It's a little complicated. It but, is, yeah. but, you know, it's we're looking at something that's very large, like an ecosystem, water, wind, trees. That's right, and they're all driven by these very broad atmospheric patterns that dictate the amount of upwelling winds as well as the amount of drought on land. You also incorporated records for birds and fish that are part of the same ecosystem into the data set that you looked at. How do they fit in with all of this? Well, it's very important to establish the biological importance of these climate patterns that we're reconstructing or hindcasting from the trees. And so the birds and the fish provide this view from the top of the marine system. They're integrating all the lower levels of the food web. And so they're a great indicator of overall productivity in the marine ecosystem. And so the fact that the birds and the fish were very highly synchronous, that the seabird reproductive success and the fish growth both related to one another very well, and that synchrony between the birds and the fish was driven by this very important climate variable that, that we were able to hindcast, tells us the, the biological relevance of our reconstruction from these blue oak. The blue oak are the trees that you looked at? That's right. The blue oak are the trees. What kind of data were you able to collect on the birds and the fish? And how long, what timescale was that on? The bird data has been collected in the Farallon Islands since about 1972. And it's the number of chicks that survive and also the date at which eggs are laid. And for the fish, we used structures in the uh, the fish's head called otoliths or ear stones, which the fish uses for orientation and hearing. And those ear stones form annual increments just like trees do. And we were able to develop fish chronologies using the same techniques we apply for tree ring data. So we could get this exactly dated history of fish growth that goes back to the 1940s using their growth increments. Very cool. Looking across all of these data sets, you find an increase in variability in the upwelling in this zone along the California coast. What might actually be the cause of this increase in unpredictability? Yes, indeed. We do see the frequency of extreme events has been rising since about 1950 in particular. And these extreme events, especially the type in which there's lots of rainfall on land and very poor upwelling those are linked with what are called El Nino events. 
the El Nino Southern Oscillation, which is a tropical climate pattern. At least its main fingerprint is in the tropics, but with profound effects to Western North America. We don't really know what the future behavior of El Nino is going to be, so it's very difficult to predict what the future of the extremes are going to be since it's so closely tied to this tropical system. And as we better understand the future of El Nino, I think we'll better understand what the expected variability in the California current might be like, especially for this winter pattern that we've reconstructed here in this study. And what about the consequences? If there is an increase in variability in this in these phenomena, what is likely to be an impact of such a shift? It's very difficult to say what the impacts will be overall, but it is true that these extreme events can be very stressful for these ecosystems. You see, for instance, with some extreme events, especially the shutdown of upwelling that is associated with El Nino events, where the fish growth is very poor and the seabird reproductive success is also quite poor and the general uh, low levels of productivity in the system. And vice versa, whenever you have extreme events in the other direction where there's lots of upwelling, you can also have considerable drought and fire danger on land. So these extreme events can be uh, very stressful for the system, and, and we also see that stress in that the extreme events are the ones that particularly synchronize what's occurring in the marine and terrestrial systems. They have the greatest impact on biology. And so it is difficult to say what the overall or cumulative effects of those extremes will be, but it is something that we can keep an eye on now that we have this longer-term history and can provide context for the 20th century. Can a method like this, where you're measuring interlocking markers from an ecosystem be used in other parts of the world where there's upwelling and and a coastal ecosystem that are all linked together? It may well be possible to apply in other parts of the world, especially where we have atmospheric patterns that are determining the coastal upwelling. There are other coastal upwelling zones in the world. And so if we have the similar atmospheric drivers of upwelling and drought on land, or any other variable that's going to drive tree growth, then it may be possible to use tree growth to tell us what was happening with upwelling in the past. Brian, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Brian Black writes about ocean upwelling off the coast of California in this week's issue. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, please write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen on the science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.